Welcome back to the Disaster Tough Podcast. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. As you know, we've been talking about dynamic populations for a long time now, and the differences between organizational style or enterprise emergency management and public sector. Those who know me know me best. Uh, definitely understand that I have worked in both sides of that house, and so I, I want to be able to call that out and talk to experts around the field. I had the very special opportunity today to talk to Sarah Razor. She worked at Churchill Downs. She's going to be working. In fact, she just got hired. She just started at the University of Kentucky. And so she has this amazing uh, experience. In fact, last week I talked about specifically how to get hired at a job. Maybe she can talk to us a little bit about that. And one of the things that I called out there was about internships. And I noticed on her LinkedIn, yes, I stalked her beforehand, that she has done two internships, both in the U.S. and in UK or in, in Canada, and really fascinated by that. And so, a really cool person to talk to. So, without any further ado, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. So, first things first. Again, congratulations on the new job. That's pretty exciting. I am hyped to be here. I'm so excited to work with University of Kentucky Police Department. They have a great program, and they're going to do awesome things. So, I'm here for it. Well, I've heard good things about them. And with you uh, adding to the team, I'm sure it's just going to be over the top now. So uh, that's pretty great stuff. Uh, let's talk about working for uh, the U.S. Congressional and then working for the Canadian Parliament internships. <laughs> you went, you're an emergency manager. You're, you, you're, you know, this resiliency advisor. Tell us about these internships and how that kind of plays into your career path. Yeah, so I'll give a little bit of background. So my bachelor's degree was in government. We make sure that we clarify government because it was before the program changed to political science. So you have to say government. Um, but I originally wanted to go into politics. So that was kind of my end goal. That was what I wanted to do. And then I did an internship in politics and realized I didn't like it. So first <laughs> off, internships teach you what you love. They teach you what you want to do. They teach you what you like. Um, specifically, they teach you what you don't like. So that was the big part of what I learned from the first internship I did was that it wasn't really fit for me. Yeah. And then I went on from there to start taking some more security geared classes, got a certificate in intelligence and security studies at the undergraduate level, mm. and then interned at Canadian Parliament, which by far one of my favorite experiences that I've ever done. Mm. It is outstanding to go over to another country, even a close by one, and see what they do, how they operate and really get an appreciation and understanding for what we do and how America and the U S is different. So it's just such a great experience. I had this uh, fun thing with my wife when we went over to um, England and uh, we were on like this kick to do museums and go out all the famous sites, of course. And I knew the answer, but I wanted to see if people in the UK actually knew the answer. And so I would go and I would ask the people at the museum, what happens if the queen enters parliament? And they'd be like, I, I don't know, like what, what would happen? So uh, to give some context at Georgetown, we got to go and hold the original mace. There's a picture of me holding the, the first mace. Um, it's where Paddington Bear lives, funny enough. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's in London. And we'd go around and most people didn't know. And then I went and asked a soldier and he goes, I'm pretty sure it's an act of war. I was like, you're right, it is. And it's just like really fascinating to like see you know, like even in our own culture, we, we have so many different things to set up in our systems. And it's important to learn about what those systems are. Uh, in terms of, of political background, funny enough, I also had the similar aspirations and also changed. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, the the reality is, it's like, you know, when you can, when you find a field that you're passionate about, like emergency management, it kind of like catches you. And I feel like that's what happened to me. I don't know if you had the same experience or not, but why did you switch from essentially like uh, political science or government to <laughs> to securities? What was the the catalyst there for you? So a lot of it was just, I came from a background, my father and grandfather were both volunteer fire department. Uh, they were both chiefs of it. I grew up in that atmosphere. I was a junior firefighter until I went to college. Cool. Uh, so it was one of those skills that I just grew up seeing that atmosphere and thought I would get that kind of satisfaction of helping people and service from politics. Yeah. Ended up getting it from uh, emergency management and security. So I actually went all the way. I have a master's degree in public administration and a master's in security and intelligence studies hmm. that was geared towards going into the security side of it. Fun fact, when you get an MPA, you look at organizational structures, you look at how they work, how they don't work, and what needs to be fixed. And I immediately took the route of going emergency management when I started on the ground floor at Churchill. Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue, and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. Okay, let's jump back in. Fantastic. So the like the, the question I have, or, or really the, yeah, I guess the, the path I want to take on that is like, when your your family influenced you into getting to this field, it caught you. Because of your experience at Churchill Downs, do you think that you've kind of taken your own path or do you feel like you still have a lot of those pools back to fire? I would say. Cause you didn't get a degree, you know, like you, you're not, you're not yeah, like fire I don't have a degree in emergency management and fire protection and anything yeah. like that. I guess that would be my first thing that I would tell anyone or looking back to younger me, I'd be like, you don't have to get a degree in this. Mm. Um, but also, I mean, I'm always going to be partial to going out and like to see the fire trucks out on the racetrack. I mean, that was one of the things we did a yearly track test of having the fire department come out, mm. make sure they could get around to where they need to go. It's always something that I like seeing. But it was also one of those where I ended up being a little bit more critical of saying, well, I know what that is, whereas maybe I don't know what some of our other special response teams would have done. Yeah. So it ended up giving me probably, I don't know if Louisville's fire chief would really appreciate it, but. I'm sure that it gave us a little bit more ammo for me to go out and say, hey, you know, why do we do this? What are we doing? How does this fit the operational plan? Because I had a little bit more background in it. Well, the the good news is like um, last week we talked about that. I, I shared this article. It's called the Ashley model. It's about mm -hmm. my COO, Ashley. And in the Ashley model, it talks about having that response experience so that you can, you know, what's happening at the end of the road so you can be better at uh, strategy. And I still believe, I, I believe in education. I believe in degrees. Um, however, I also think that emergency managers, emergency managers without some kind of response experience are not very effective because they don't really know what their decisions are happening at, down the road. If they get that response experience or they at least have that background, they're so much more effective. And yes, it does give you a lot more ammo when you're talking to somebody like, 
I do know your job and I do know the lingo and I know exactly what's supposed to be happening. And so there's one, a communication piece that can happen, but two, like, you know, the, for a lack of a better term, you get away from all the BS. Like, no, dude, like I know your job. And so let's, let's have a real conversation. I think that's really comes what it comes down to in terms of like switching gears here for a second, though, in terms of Churchill Downs, Churchill Downs is a unique uh, venue. It has uh, a lot of attention. I would say specifically in my family, there's like a three day period where it's like, you know, glued to that TV. Uh, how does that interact? Like, how does that interaction both on the national stage, maybe international stage work for you? And why is that maybe so different than like maybe a public sector job when they're, you know, more behind the scenes kind of perspective? Two words, customer experience. So I will say upfront that it is a major priority of Churchill to make sure that they had a great customer experience and people, the perspective of the public is changing when they go to a special event. So it's no longer that they're going just to be entertained. It's that enough has happened in the world that they are going to make sure that they're safe while they're being entertained. Yeah. So it has become such a priority for private venues and for private industry as a whole to really gear towards how can we keep people safe while still making the whole event or the whole experience enjoyable? And that was really the delicate balance that was so entertaining to work at mm. and see how can you say, okay, yes, if we add more security at the gates, it may extend your wait time, but what's the favorable level where someone is going to say, hey, I'll wait an extra five minutes and not complain while I know that it's going to be safer versus maybe that time period has shifted in the last 20 years. I would have loved to have the data to be able to go back and see how patron entry times changed based on the atmosphere of what was going on in the area. I just talked with the head of security for Bush Stadium. So shout out to Phil about changing their also security by design and essentially using like statues as like, you know, barricades and that kind of stuff. So it's like still a, a beautiful experience for the patron. Uh, in terms of data collection, I could understand that like we would, we would we have to make a lot of assumptions. How how does a venue or if somebody's working in this field and they're like, okay, I just got hired at like an amusement park, Disney or wherever. How do you actually capture the data of the customer experience? Because I, I'm assuming that a survey doesn't go out about like, how did you feel about security while you were there? You know, how many guns did you notice? Like, I'm sure you don't like you'll ask those kind of questions. So how do you actually gauge like that level of acceptance? I would say there's kind of the three baselines, right? Is there's the individuals that send information back in and say, Hey, I didn't enjoy the lost and found experience, or I didn't have a good time with waiting in line this long, or there wasn't enough water, or there wasn't enough food stands. You're always going to have those people that are proactive to say, I'm going to send in something and I'm going to say, proactive is such a you're such a nice person for saying that. Yeah, <laughs> You have to be. Yeah. It's, it's They are proactive. They're taking a step to say, hey, this didn't work and I want you to know about it. And that's mm. great. <laughs> but and then you have kind of the level two, which is those that go on social media. So that's a major mm. part of it is seeing what actually comes out after the event on social media and saying, were people happy with how the event went? Were they taking pictures with our canine teams? Were they out there with law enforcement? Was that a positive interaction that they had with yeah. our teams? And it was really kind of looking back from, so I started at Churchill in October of 2019, went through COVID derby, went through oh, our kind of halfway populated derby, and then went back to a full-scale derby last year in 2022. So we saw the whole gamut, yeah. Yes. And really looking through 
the social media afterwards and saying, okay, this is what impacted our patrons. This is what they saw. This is what they looked for. You really saw a shift in how having law enforcement and public safety out and about in public, full uniform, ready to Mm go, changed the perception. So COVID really kind of made that shift. We're saying, okay, we're going to take pictures of the canine teams. We're going to go out there and we're going to interact with law enforcement. Mm. We're happy that they're here. We're glad that we're here. Uh, we had people that came and would just ask, where's the first aid tents without needing it. Yeah. And that was kind of a change that from my understanding previous to 2019 really didn't happen is people really something shifted in that time period where people started being proactive and saying public safety is a priority. We're going to come out here and look to see if the event's safe. And then we'll go get our drinks and our mint juleps and have a good time. The, uh, ever since I started doing like stadium by design security and with DHS, I will get people randomly sending me pictures of like, and it's usually the pictures of like terrible, like first aid kits. Like, look at this, uh, you know, bleeding control kit. It's awful. And it's like, wh- what would you do about that? And so like, without like trying to toot my own horn a little bit, but uh, what we did is I worked with a bunch of paramedics in house and we're actually launching our own, uh, essentially brand, um, for like redesigning what MCI kits should be. I was at an MLS game and I was on the field and I saw the Ninja turtle walk by with a giant MCI back on him. And, uh, you know, I said, Hey, how many of these do you have? And I won't say which stadium it was at, uh, but as far as I knew, they had one, one giant MCI kit. And I'm like, that's not going to work. And so in-house, we worked on like what we're calling like the web system where all ushers, all security personnel, a lot of staff. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this on a podcast because I hope it's just public knowledge. People re- rethink about this. But like instead of having the giant tur- Ninja Turtle with the giant pack on, everybody has a little bit of stuff. And you can use the professionals to to provide direct support and ushers to provide essentially like, you know, resupplying those lines if something major happened across, you know, any kind of venue or campus. Um, We're working with universities as well. And so it's like, it's fun to look at data and work at like flows and that kind of stuff. I like like heat mapping, you know, with GIS and try to figure out like where people get stuck. in terms of like uh, best practice, I know the NBA has requirements for like emergency management protocol, and that's for all of NBA. NFL is a little different; it's like more by stadium, but they still have like overarching, you know, strategic visions. Uh, MLB is all over the place, from what I've seen, and so it's like, and no discredit to like, I'm sure there's professionals at every stadium, but in terms of like governance of like best practice for you guys when you were at uh, you know, the um, Churchill Downs. And now that you're moving into the university system, like whatever, it's like NFP A1660 or whatever it is. What are the governing documents that are public sourced so that if somebody wants to get better in this space, they can kind of say, okay, like this is how I would do it. Like, how would you approach that topic? Yeah, so horse racing is kind of a unique creature and I'll tackle it first is horse racing really was kind of run at the state level. So Kentucky Horse Racing Commission set the standards for kind of racetracks, racetrack safety, jockey safety, equine care, those standards across the board. And then that has recently gone up to HISA, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act. 
So okay. it is now a federal level regulation that wow. has come in. Um, they've pulled in some experts in equine safety. Uh, I think they probably could pull in a few more experts in emergency management, but they've pulled in some public safety side as well to kind of get the best practices for horse racing tracks and kind of meet that standard that you see at stadiums, at arenas, at these big event venues. Mm -hmm. Because horse racing just historically has been an outdoor event that has run on either a very small facility or like Churchill Downs is 147 acres. I mean, it just was such a scaled size but there wasn't a standard here's your eop here's your best practices standards to fit every racetrack in the us um and then looking at kind of the venue side of it i we love the national center for sports safety and security ncs4 has outstanding classes outstanding trainings and it really gives an opportunity to expand your training beyond just that public safety staff hmm. so our operations team had gone to crowd management trainings and venue security trainings and really had an understanding of how does security best fit in with the operation because if operations and security aren't working together you're mm -hmm. running in different directions for the whole event that's awesome in terms of like the i'm sure there's a major difference between the patron safety the horse safety the trainer safety you know like what in terms of your perspective um i'm sure they're all equal but like <laughs> what what is like the priority for an organization like for example like whether it's horses or players or, you know, event, right? Like if it's a, like a play or whatever, um, in terms of like priorities, where should somebody start with the priority? Is the priority like continuity of operations there for players? Is it, uh, you know, make sure the patrons come back, you know, like what is, what are the kind of the priorities for you? And you're going to be doing like, you know, sports stadiums again at the, at the UK, right? The university of Kentucky. So, where do you start in terms of that like hazard vulnerability assessment or that even that like coop perspective i would say you have to get down your everyday operations first you have to know so at churchill we had horses on site every day of the year for the most part and it was hmm. how can you make sure the equine is safe every day how can you make sure that the people that work there are safe mm -hmm. if your office staff doesn't know what they're doing in an emergency your patrons aren't going to know what they're doing in an emergency i love that So really kind of getting that what is our routine operations down? What do we do in an emergency for that routine operations? And then build those layers up to say, okay, now we have a special event. Now we have 50,000 people on site. Now we have 140,000 people on site. Mm. You can't plan for 20 people on site. You can't plan for 150 on site. So the question remains for me though. So we do these dynamic populations courses. I want to say that like 30 times to make sure you come alone, <laughs> but maybe other people can come too. But like the, the reality is like when you're dealing with a multicultural, multilingual population that's only occupying a space for a very short amount of time, how do you even test evacuation procedures outside of like looking at like what happened at Penn State when they had a stampede? Or I think a couple of weeks ago, there was even an incident that was, um, gosh, where was that? Um, another stampede happened where a crowd and people got trampled without like looking at only the real world, like after actions, how do you get a population who is, could come from anywhere with all kinds of perceptions of security and then to get them to fall in line? Like what are the, some of the things that are in place to help people do that? And I've, I have an idea, but I would love to hear your idea. I think it's, I mean, I'll start with the, be creative with it. I mean, you're never going to be able to say, okay, let me get 150,000 people to volunteer to come and just test emergency procedures all day. You might get a chunk of those. So at Churchill, we had 
four main buildings, if I could get enough people to say, okay, we're going to start at the top floor of one and we're going to walk it down and see mm. how long it takes with a crowded stairwell with people pushing against each other, then that's a small population that I can use that information to kind of mirror at the other parts of the facility. Yeah. But work with what you have. I mean, reach out to universities, reach out to local volunteer groups. There are a lot of people that are willing to come and work with public safety and get all moulaged up and mm. get ready to kind of see what happens. And if you can't do the full scale, do a small scale that you can scale up and use kind of some best practices to guide it. Okay, real talk. I get really sad every time I hear someone's doing a full scale and they don't include the cert teams. It's like the one thing that they all want to do. They all want to like dress up and be involved. And it's like, hey, who are you, you including? Oh, the firefighters. Great. Like include people with moulage that are just want to act. And I swear, I went to a USAR training two weeks ago. And I thought like you could light some candles and do kumbaya. It was so quiet. And I was like, get some actors in here, some assert people. And they will be screaming more than anybody else. They will be all in. Um, and so it's like great call out there to like include those groups in terms of trying to evacuate, you know, 20,000, a hundred thousand, 150,000 people. Like the worst case scenario is when people start panicking. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of like a pre, uh, I, would, I don't want to say pre-planning. I hate that term to be honest. It's just planning. But in, in terms of like putting those operations together, I think a great tool that most places don't have that venues have are the giant screens. If you can utilize some like, Hey, we're in evacuation. Everything's okay. Please exit the building. And that's not just like some announcer, just like, you know, like sounding nervous while they're trying to evacuate, but it's like, press a button, let it play. Everybody walk out. You can get people to, to be much more calm when they know that it's been organized right? Like you're talking essentially, you know, the, the shift of level of trust. Yep. I go around the country. And when I talk about active shooter, I say Uvalde changed the way parents will interact with schools indefinitely because now they have an expectation that they cannot trust law enforcement and they think they should go inside. And that will actually hurt themselves and their children when 99% of the time it's the responder who is professional. Uvalde, I've been hypercritical of that. They didn't follow anything that has been taught in the last 20 years for best practice. But in terms of like most law enforcement, they're highly professional. You look at an active shooter that happened just a couple months ago at a school here in St. Louis, and it was over in minutes because the law enforcement did exactly what they were supposed to do. But we have to start now telling administrative staffs, hey, when was the last time you talked to students, uh, their parents, about a reunification where do you go to pick up your kid can you trust the system and i think we have to do a lot of work now um by our own fault and by maybe the fault of malicious other people to rebuild that trust with patrons no matter who they are venues schools my own family i think about my four-year-old boy at a preschool and like even me, I'm like, I get super nervous about the level of training from the local law enforcement and I want to have that trust. And so like anytime they're taking pictures of that kind of stuff, huge call out I'm talking a lot here, but obviously hyper passionate. Well, uh, and I'll kind of jump on to is I think I put a lot of it back on 
If you're at an industry, if you're in private security, if you're in private emergency management, if you're at a company doing this job, part of your job is to build that trust with your employees. Part of your job is to say, the only time I want to talk to you is not when your badge works or when your ID doesn't work. I want to talk with you when things are going right, when things aren't going right. Yes. You have to build the trust to be able to say, hey, if you see something that doesn't look right, the old adage, see something, say something, it still applies in private business. But if you don't know who your security officer is at the front desk, if you don't know who the person that you can go to for correcting your ID or for getting an issue resolved or for fixing a parking pass, if security handles that at your company, you're not going to be able to say, hey, I saw this guy and I wasn't sure if he was acting how he was supposed to be or I have this coworker that maybe is not acting how they normally act, you're not going to feel comfortable going to your security or public safety department and saying, hey, we might want to check this out. If you don't even know how to interact with them or know who they are to say, I need to get my ID fixed. I need to get a parking pass. I need to do the basic day-to-day stuff. Absolutely. And I put that back on private security and say, get out there, meet the employees, bring in food, sit down with them, make it to where having somebody in a uniform is not an abnormal occurrence. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I have two experiences that directly fall in line with that. When I was in the public sector, um, we're talking to maintenance at the campus that I worked at. The ma- the guy at maintenance, first of all, always include maintenance. They know more about a campus than anybody else. But talking to the head of maintenance, uh, we were talking about an active assailant one time. And he was like, honestly, I have a list of, of security guards that I know if I walked up to him and say, hey, can you give me your gun? Because I know you're going to run away. I was like, ooh, that's not a great perception of that. And so we, we did all, had to build a lot of work. The second one was at the same campus, and I shared it again on last week. So if you're listening to this podcast, make sure you check that out. But it was all about understanding the motivations of the stakeholders, especially at research facilities where I worked out, universities, that kind of place, uh, venues where the, the goal is not security. The goal is to have a good experience. They look some. They sometimes look at emergency managers as doomsday preppers, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, emergency managers historically, my opinion, again, I love our field. We don't do a great job of communicating that when we say an all hazards plan, we don't think that all hazards are actually going to happen. We even do high, you know, high frequency, high consequence events, and we work our way backwards, and we know that. But the language we use makes it sound like every day I think there's going to be a tornado, earthquake, you know, bomb, nuke, EMP. It's all going to happen every day. And while things can happen any day, I think it's really important to figure out the motivations of the people that you work with. And the what happened with, with me is I was treated like I was like a foil hat doomsday prepper. And then I built an augmented reality sandbox. The director's kid went there and they were playing with the sandbox and we we're talking about flooding and where to build buildings and i shared this again last week so i don't want to talk about it too much but all of a sudden there was this realization that this person was intelligent they had you know thought process they, they recognized and understood data and they weren't a doomsday prepper and once that happened it was like instant click like yeah. oh there's respect that would never happen if i didn't try to do like go overboard and try to like meet them where they were at well and so, that's that's the entire shift of emergency managers in private industry is If you hire an emergency manager, you're not hiring someone for the one day when something terrible happens. You're hiring to prep for that, but you're also hiring a Swiss army knife that can sit on operations plan and look at traffic plans. They can sit on 
your kind of public relations and brand representation teams and say, hey, you know, what happens if we do this? If we say this language, it may portray this message. And how do you want to portray the brand in an emergency in this perspective? You're hiring someone that can do a little bit of everything and specialize in some really quality information to get you through an emergency. But more than that, most of the time they become an integral part of a team that says, hey, I can do ops, I can do brand representation, I can do events, I can work with these people and pull it all together. Okay, so first of all, like mic truck moment, uh, the Swiss Swiss Army knife of emergency management, Sarah Razor <laughs> is what we're going to start calling you now. But um, really phenomenal comments here. And quite frankly, I think it gives a lot of people, a lot of things for people to chew on in terms of like understanding a different perspective. I recognize that private sector emergency management is doing a lot better at fixing that messaging and working with stakeholders. Pete Gaynor called it out, I think, in one of his articles. He said it on this podcast as well. All emergency managers need to do much better on messaging. Our branding, our style, our approach, all that stuff, people like try not to think about it. Like They don't think it's a big deal. But then they wonder why the stakeholder doesn't want to include them. And all that, all that preparation of like learning how to interact with your audience, your decision makers, to get the things that you want. It could be, hey, I would like to spend some money to create a video about evacuations on our screen. That takes time and money, resources, even internally. And if people don't think it's important, they're not going to do that, right? And it could be, it could be new evacuation signs. It could be training internally. It could be hiring an outside group, hire Doberman. You know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it comes into play. So, well, you have to get. You have to get someone to hire the person and believe in the person first. I mean, if yeah. you, when I first started at Churchill, I wasn't going to be able to walk up to senior leadership and say, you should believe me just because you should. This is what we need to do. You have to go up there and build that trust. Like I said, and say, hey, they know who they're going to. They know that they're talking to you and that they can trust you and that you're going to respond, even if it's as simple as you have a flat tire in the parking lot and you don't know how to get a tow truck in with the traffic plan. That yeah. kind of stuff has to happen from somebody. And if you can be the person that can get it done, then when you go to them and say, hey, this is an issue we really need to fix, they're going to start to listen to you and say, okay, what do we need to do? I hear you. But at the same time, I'm a little bit of cloud, I think. And people <laughs> should just trust Sarah just because I said they should trust Sarah. You are the Swiss Army knife of emergency management. Um, <laughs> well, that's the okay. quote I'll put on my resume now. John Scardy oh says just trust Sarah. <laughs> Don't leave, take my name off of it. You'll probably have <laughs> actually better luck with it. But um, okay. So we're wrapping up here, Sarah, if you could give advice to the, the field, somebody who's looking to get into this space for, you've had two, you have a couple of really cool jobs, cool internships, cool background. How does somebody propel their career with your advice? Talk to people, go up there when you're interacting, when you're at a county fair, go talk to the firefighters that are working the county fair. When you're looking for internships, I got my position at Churchill by just emailing into the website. It wasn't a posted position. It wasn't something mm. that was out there. It was just something that I said, hey, this is a major venue. They might need some volunteer help. They might need someone they can come in for events. I'm just going to send it in. So reach out, talk to people, and don't underestimate the amount of free trainings and free resources that are online. Go yes. and learn as much as you can. Go through FEMA's classes sit and learn as much as you can and you'll get the opportunities that open up to say, Hey, I know how to use this. Can I help in any way, shape or form, even if that's volunteer work first. Phenomenal. I, I agree a hundred percent. Get in front of people, network, 
it, we're a small industry. And if you get in front of people and you show that you've learned a thing or two, eventually doors will start opening. And um, I, I agree with that 100%. Sarah, thank you so much for coming onto my podcast and talking with me. What an awesome <laughs> opportunity for you to come onto the po podcast and uh, you know chat with me about a different perspective of emergency management, for sure. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me. All right, guys. So if you like this podcast, which you should have, uh, because Sarah is the Swiss Army Knife of Emergency Management, if you like this podcast and you learn a thing or two, please let us know by liking and subscribing. If you have a comment, if you found something at your campus or you're looking to get into the space, make sure you send us a comment. We get lots of emails at contact at the readiness lab .com, which is really nice, but we'd like to see it on social media. Ask the community. We are a small field. There's lots of people who want to help. And um, my last plug again, uh, Sarah, I don't know if she can endorse this or not, but I definitely endorse Disaster Tough podcast and Dynamic Population. So make sure you come out and hang with us at the end of the summer with our group as we address evacuations, mass care, security, public relations, CBRN, and medical transport and triage. Really important topics for emergency managers to learn how to work with their counterparts. And we'll see you for the next one. Peace.